everyone who ever comes in this building has some level of imposter syndrome, even though we're dealing with some of the most talented, smart people I've ever known. I mean, the nicest thing about coming here each day is like, I'm never around, like, I'm surrounded by idiots. Like, I was all the time in recording studios with musicians. Like, we have geniuses in here every day. But they still have imposter syndrome and you lack of confidence. But I think the thing that I've learned over the years is that um, you have to go out into the arena and learn that like you are good at things and take those things in and try to remember the wins and remind yourselves yourself that like I did good work with this person. I did good things, but also Let's not showboat it too much. <laughs> but don't need to put up a banner about everything. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where each week we talk to founders and freelancers about their journey creating and scaling up their business. My name is Chris Colbert, and I'm the founder and CEO of the media company DCP Entertainment, as well as the video and podcast recording space, Podstream Studios Times Square. These conversations have been recorded with a live audience on the Fireside app, and we've brought you the best moments from our conversations, discussing the various struggles that founders have had to face. Now, if you'd like to be part of our live conversations where we allow the audience to participate, please sign up to Fireside and follow me to stay up to date about upcoming recordings. You can visit our show notes for a direct link. This week, I'm talking to Jesse Cannon, a person who wears many different hats in the entertainment industry. Jesse is a freelancer that has worked with some of the biggest names in music and podcasting. He's also a successful YouTuber who has over 34,000 followers. And he's the owner of two recording spaces in New York, one of them being the company that we co-founded in 2021, Podstream Studios Times Square. So in this conversation, we discuss what it's like working with demanding clients, how to create a professional work atmosphere in a casual work setting, and how to properly manage team members who are maintaining multiple jobs outside of our company. And apologies for the audio quality this week, as I should have trusted our Podstream team to actually help us record this interview instead of trying to do everything myself. So this is why you should trust the amazing team that you've hired. But lesson learned. And now let's learn some more lessons from Jesse. Jesse is somebody who, you know, we partnered together because he had already been running studios. And so I wanted to bring him here for this conversation to talk about what it's like creating and starting your own recording studio, not just for podcasts, but you do stuff in music, um, but also to talk about, you know, he's a freelancer and somebody, you know, we talk about these conversations are for entrepreneurs and for freelancers. And you're essentially running your own business as a freelancer. So I really want to talk about that as well. Jesse's just an extreme audio professional, also now video professional, uh, literally has degrees. Yeah, has degrees in all these things, including soundproofing. So he's someone who I fully lean on when it comes to building studios and just understanding how to present audio and video. So Jesse, welcome to the program. So psyched to be here. So psyched you're doing this. <laughs> well, yeah, and I really appreciate being our first male uh, guest. Ah, it's all women leading up to you. Well, I, I think I'm a good transition, you know, I, I, like I said, my feminine side is very out there. So, you know, uh, I, hopefully it eases everyone into when you have some more masculine guests. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, you're somebody who I feel like would be really coveted to work at any major company and probably could make some really good money doing that. Like, what made you want to work on your own? And I've got to mention you also have your Brooklyn studio. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, tell me about how you kind of created that and what made you want to do this. I... Uh, so I initially worked 
for other people at recording studios. When I started working at recording studios, which was 1996, uh, it was way too expensive for someone like me to own one. Uh, you know, you're probably talking, I mean, I guess when I started mine in 1999, I think I had to put about 50K into it, wow. uh, which was not easy to come by. I got very fortunate that one of the first records I did where I worked, I, I, actually, the first record I ever made on Pro Tools, I did on a spec deal that if we sold it, I'd get a lot of money. And it actually sold to Atlantic Records, where I later worked 20 years later. Uh, and I got a check that I never would have thought. I got about 25K. I saved up a bunch of other money, uh, but I was able to buy a Pro Tools system, which at the time, so today you could get into Pro Tools with like a $900 Mac and a $300 license or a $27 a month license. I had to pay $21,000 for the lowest Pro Tools system. And then you need microphones, mic preamps, all these things. But I did that out of my parents' basement, but eventually I got brought up to work for other people. So I was working for Ross Robinson, who's one of the biggest producers in all music. Many people know him for the new metal scene. He discovered uh, Deftones, Corn, Limp Bizkit, Slipknot, all these mega, mega acts. Um, and I loved Ross, one of my best friends, and I worked under him and Steve Evitz. Uh, they're still some of my closest friends, but I want to do me. Uh, really, at the end of the day, I like doing different things. I like writing, I've written two books. I like, my brain doesn't feel good unless I'm doing new things and experimenting all the time and learning new things, which is what I've loved about this project uh, here at Podstream is that like video is somewhat new to me and like getting to know it and learning all the ins and outs is super challenging every day. But it's not like you still need that creative outlet for yes. yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most interesting thing is that, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about is that you have to, with a business, you know, so much of it is functional details and just repeating the same thing. Like, I hear you in an analytics meeting, I'm like, <laughs> I've heard that said 12 times, just through the wall. <laughs> and it's like, that part gets boring, but it's a really important work. And so you have to find how you do the stimulating things so you stay motivated and that's keeping on progressing and you know, businesses die. Like we all have been to that restaurant that was great at one point, but then it's just repeating and not innovating and not doing anything. But then there's also the balance of that restaurant where the dish was good, but now it keeps changing it and you want a burger. <laughs> that mozzarella tasted great two years ago. Stop messing with it. <laughs> yeah, so even when you started going out on your own, like how did you decide where you're going to put your studio? Because part of the idea is, okay, you want an influx of people who want to use the space, but there's a lot of places where there is that influx of people already have a lot of studios, so there's a lot of competition. So how do you balance that competition versus where the clientele is? So this has been an interesting thing over the years, is the evolution of this. When I started in 1999, there was competition, but the type of music I was doing, which was a lot of emo and punk, there wasn't much options in all of New York City. And I was outside of New York City. I was in Montclair, New Jersey, which is about a 20-minute drive out there. Fancy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, what I always say is fancy, except uh, that we were living in the terrible, poor uh, apartment complex there. <laughs> no, not many people think about that Montclair as this 
side of it. That's not, not so fancy. So for most of you don't know New Jersey, Mount Clare tends to be more expensive area, mansions, things like that. But, but, yeah, you but, were but yeah, New, Jer- New Jersey uh, has that, that nice law about building affordable income. But uh, So I was in a basement that I eventually got thrown out of because the neighbors were banging on the walls. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so like, I would have mostly people from the city, even though there's tons of sit- uh, studios out here coming out to me because I understood how to make the sounds and the music. And so many people didn't understand the culture of what we were doing. So, but then it got very saturated. By about 2004, I was like a, basically a fish in a sea. And so it then shifted to a very interesting thing, which was that every thing we got hired for was all about past work. It didn't, nothing mattered. I mean, password. So, like, records I'd already done. God. Somebody really loved that record. And we started becoming destination. Like, you know, uh, I, I would do analytics at the end of every year, and between 70 and 80% of people were traveling from out of state to come work with us. So, and I'm just saying New York, New Jersey border, even when my studio was in Union City, New Jersey, which is five blocks from Manhattan. I mean, technically, that studio was on 39th Street, and it was parallel to 39th Street here, so we were technically be three avenues, I'm sorry, eight avenues over, if you don't count the river, <laughs> nine blocks. It's a big don't count. Yeah, but, yeah, it's a big don't count, but, but, but truly 20 minutes away from you, where yeah. we're sitting right now in the heart of Times Square. And the location didn't matter because people cared about it, but then that changed. Mm-hmm. And there's just so many options that it became a thing. So then we had to start thinking about location more, which is one of the reasons that we obviously came to this space is that, you know, you can, you could literally get to what I counted the other day in a two minute walk. You can get to eight of subway lines. Which is <laughs> the majority of our subway lines. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is really a crazy thing that I had only realized last week. <laughs> I knew pretty early on. <laughs> Um, but like, so as you're now building these places, are you just doing it by yourself? Are you bringing on a team? Like when, when, when was that decision that you needed to bring more people on? Uh, I had to bring more people on very early. You know, the funny thing, my first studio, I'm actually going to visit, uh, my first assistant student, but we have these hilarious pictures because I was basically in a tiny apartment's basement. And so he needed room to work on another pro tools, but there was no room and he literally used the toilet. As his desk seat. Oh no! We pulled the toilet up to it, and so we had to go to the bathroom. We had to just get up, and we couldn't work anymore because, you know, it's like we were doing things on shoestring budgets, and like he, I needed extra help. And I think this is much more luxurious these days. And my studio in Brooklyn is much more luxurious now. But man, like started at the bottom, and uh, now I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I actually didn't realize you started literally you know, in your bathroom, essentially. Yeah, yeah, no, I literally, like, uh, and then my second studio was, like, in a warehouse where, like, later, again, it was a little dark, it's like the landlord was so bad, the heating system killed people. Look. Oh, my gosh. Oh, like, yeah. Like, just, like, slums. And, but that's, the thing is, is, like, with music, it's like, you are always dealing with people who can barely afford to do anything aspirational. And so we had to always do that. And then eventually I got into better places and better places by, you know, my, I was in a space in Union City for 13 years and I looked at, I'm not kidding you, 110 different uh, spaces were on my spreadsheet for an entire year. Uh, I moved in about 330 days after I looked at the first place. And I just said no to everything until I found Finally, an affordable place that was convenient to get to and had enough space for me to work. Wow. 
Yeah, you know, it's a journey right there. And it's like, but at the same time, you're constantly having to pivot, understanding, you know, you went to multiple places in Jersey, yeah. moved to Brooklyn, like, you're always just kind of prepared for what may come, it sounds like. Yeah, and you, you have to adapt. I mean, I lost that space uh, due to the building getting sold after 13 years, and, you know, I put 50000 into just the building itself and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, never mind, moving costs are horrendous for a studio like that, and then it takes you months on it. I really, we were at the other studio that we landed there before the one I'm in now for two years, one of which was the pandemic, and we never really finished building it because of the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. Well, the yeah, pandemic is partially what got us in here, but we'll, yes. we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, back to just with the employees, when you're bringing on employees back then and, and even now, like I know our structure now is we have a lot of part-time people that work yes. with us, but has, has that always been the case for your other spaces as well? Is it normally part-time or freelance people? Usually people who work in these type of spaces have aspirations for something that is going to be their own creative thing. Um, so. They're usually not going to want to be full-on committed because they want space to work on that and then you're kind of their sidebar, which does make things difficult because you also have to get them to take this seriously because you need it serious. So, like, there's a work motivation. Like, when I would be working for uh, under other producers, a lot of my motivation would be, like, one, I wanted to write by them, two, a lot of people are going to hear because they were big records. And then three, uh, I knew from my previous uh, work was that even when I worked under people, a lot of times they would hire me to do other things that they couldn't afford the bigger producers for. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing for who you hire. Like um, Brian DeBeglio, who runs uh, Brooklyn Recording Paradise, my other studio, now works with most of my old music clients because I don't have the time to do music as much anymore since I'm so busy with this and podcasts. Uh, so nearly all of my clients now, I mean, sometimes I just want to see them. I pop by for the weekend and have a beer and say hello while they're finishing up because I just miss them as friends. But mm -hmm. that's the hope is that the employee grows into somebody who takes on the other work for you that you can't do anymore. Having to hire employees, which a lot of times in, in this kind of industry is more freelancers. And as we're just talking about, a lot of those people have things that they're doing outside of this space. And so... You were kind of touching on it, uh, you know, in what you were just saying, but, you know, how do you then get them to, let me also back up and say, you know, recording spaces tend to be a little bit more relaxed than your normal, you know, pro uh, professional spaces, you know. We're wearing jeans and, and yeah. you know, hoodie and t-shirt right now. But I call same, this dressed up. I was going to say, this is actually dressed up for us right now. You know, yeah. even, I come in here in sweatpants half the time. Yeah. So the professionalism isn't necessarily the same as other businesses, but how do you still maintain professionalism within the work or in terms of how we are dealing with clients or, you know, just anything around the office? How do you balance professionalism versus kind of that casual culture that recording spaces have? I, the, the, the answer is is that you have to make the border of that the lack of professionalism has to be when there's zero clients even in the building. <laughs> I think like uh, we all want to have fun. We all want to have things that you have to feel a vibe for each person. But you also have to really, you know, a lot of the clients will do really unprofessional things. They'll want an environment that's a little chaotic. They're a little weird. They're going to say crazy things. But you have to be... While you could probably meet them at their level, it's usually best to shy away from that. And that's the thing we encourage here is that you need to be the, like I always say, I'm the, I try to be the most boring person in a room because I don't want to one-outshine. 
you know, I host my own things, I have my own YouTube channel as well. I don't want to outshine the guests. I don't want to be the star of the show. I want to just be somebody who they can kind of forget about, but also leave a good impression. Um, and I think that that's really the thing is you don't want to say the most outlandish thing. You don't want to, you know, you could be the poorest dressed because they're on camera, but like, you also need to really be that person who's the rock and hold it down. Like the thing I tell people all the time is like, I love to drink. I have regularly drank all my life. I've drunk on two sessions and I've been working in this for 24 years. Wow. Um, and you know, uh, I just refuse to do it. I come to work and I take my work seriously. And when I'm not at work, then I enjoy so. But it's also because I'm, we have to remember what people are hiring me for, which is to be the most professional person who's overseeing this all, not to be a part of the party. Like what the money is for is you're there to be the person who makes sure the party goes okay. Yeah, and that someone's recording it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and truthfully, like one of those two sessions, like I've almost never erased anything. I had one beer, so I wasn't even drunk. I have much higher tolerance for that, and I made a mistake. And I was like, "See, this is why you don't do this." Yeah, it's like I was in a different headspace. I was in the wrong headspace, and I've almost never erased anything. And then I had to stay late, fix it, so the band never heard it. <laughs> Thank God they played that part twice in the song, so I could copy and paste it over. Which <laughs> only having drank twice on the job, I know to the people who are not in, like, say, the entertainment space, that might sound like, oh, that's super easy. When you're in these like that people are smoking, they're drinking, and they're offering you stuff. Like, it's really tough sometimes. Because you also want them to feel like you're part of the crew yeah. so they feel comfortable with you. So, you know, sometimes you want to take that drink just to make them feel a little bit more comfortable. That's exactly right. When I always tell people, it's like, when people see uh, Mad Men, they're like, God, all they do is drink. It's like, you should see a recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> Um, when it comes to, you know, you were kind of mentioning just in, in the people who are at the studio, but you're also a freelancer. So yes. I think this pertains to both where sometimes you work with clients that aren't always on their best behavior. Oh, yeah. um, and they will talk to you any kind of way, especially because they know that they're paying you. And so they feel like, you know, again, they can just treat you any way they want to. How do you, how do you work with that? Like, how do you still try to be professional and at the same time hold your ground, especially if it might affect what the recording is going to be? There's an interesting thing uh, the producer Rick Rubin talks about, which is he talks about that uh, attention to detail and professionalism, people rise to the level most of the time. But the problem is, is that some people are coming from a level that's so below grounded, you know, just living in the depths of polluted seas of their personality that even them coming up to your level when you're behaving well is still bad behavior. And the key is, is that you have to do that, like, you know, when somebody I can see is, um, as we call in the business, a punisher, uh, that think that part of your rate is for them to punish you, you have to sit there and remain calm and professional. You can tell them that their behavior is getting out of line, that is very in balance, but my thing, we curse here. Oh, yes, okay, yes. Okay. I tell people all day, and you've heard this before, it's not the most uh, polite way to say this, but I sometimes call this type of work the manure farm, because your job is to eat shit. Your job is you're being paid to deal with all the bad complaints. You are the complaint box. You are the thing, because it's very easy to lose your empathy towards people because some of the things are so small or annoying or they're even just have bad taste and bad vision hmm. you have to remember you're being paid to make someone's vision happen 
Sometimes you're being paid to contribute to that vision, help get it to a better place. But at the end of the day, you're still being paid because someone has a dream or an aspiration and they're trying to make it come true. And you're being paid to facilitate that through their lack of knowledge of how to do it or their lack of equipment to do it. And you have to remember that at all times and maintain a professional attitude. And I smile through it all. Um, as you know, like I get, you know, I, the, the, when we've had nightmare clients, you have to take it seriously that this person is just trying to be happy, and that's yeah. what they're paying you for. And to your point, it's their vision, it's their you know intellectual property, their content. You're just there to help record it, and, and again, you know, give them that professional you know equipment and, and skill set. But you know, at times, yeah, you do have to kind of step in and say, well. This isn't going to look right. You're going to be upset if we shoot it this way. So why don't we try this? But you still have to let them make the final decision. Yes, uh, you make a great point here. That uh, I one of the things I instill in everybody is that give a suggestion once. If they are making the worst mistake, if you really think that they have, or they're going to do something they're going to regret, you can say a second time. But I would reserve those second times to no more than once or twice for every suggestion you're going through. You need to leave one of those on the, the cutting room floor usually and just not pursue it. But you could say a second time, you can push back. But if they say, no, this is what I want, it, after two times, you have to be over it. You have to move on and go through with the mistake. And try, you know, as somebody who has some clients that are 24 years in, the amount of times I get an email, let's call it, half a decade later that I was right about something <laughs> on a record that they're listening back to. Well, I can't say it's not 20, 30, 40 times that that's happened, but that's their choice and that's part of the process. Yeah. Well, you, basically what you touched on is like picking your battles too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so you're picking your battles with clients, but also sometimes you have to pick your battles with your own team, whether oh, you're yeah. managing up or down. But, you know, we'll just put it in the context of, you know, you running businesses so how do you pick your battles when it comes to your team, especially knowing that they're you know, part-time employees, they have other things going on, they're using this hopefully as a stepping stone to something bigger for themselves. How do you pick those battles with, with your own team members? Uh, the first thing I think we have to remember is you need to have a lot of thought before you talk to an employee about where they're at at the time. They can be really overworked because you've been booking them on crazy hours. They worked last weekend. Now may not be the time to broach that, you know, they're wearing a shirt with a curse word on it very regularly in front of some very tight-ass clients. It's probably going to fly we're in New York City where there's a shirt that says, fuck you, you fucking fuck, being sold downstairs. Like, <laughs> they've seen worse. Let's take that up another day. But I try to go through the process of, like, instead of thinking of me and my frustration towards it first of, like, I write it down in my notes app. I, you know, one of the most important things I've learned with to-do apps is um, to actually have to-dos for each person in your life, um, so that when you see them. So a good example is there has been times where you and I are traveling, and I'll have the list of okay, next time I see Chris, we got to talk about these four things in person. That stuff is really, really helpful to do, so that you pick your battles, but it still gets done at the time. And then the other thing to remember too is that some people respond only to really serious sit-downs. Some people respond really well to casual, just like, oh, by the way, you know, the other day you were picking your nose and wiping it, real thing I've had to do. Uh, that's the client's equipment that you wiped it on. You can wipe it on your own. <laughs> that's between you and yourself, but not their equipment, please. That's a little weird. Real thing I've done, had to do. Uh, but like, and then some people need it to be like 
so loving. Like I had a business partner that like I raised my voice at him and this is a partner in business and start crying and I had to hug him and I don't want to do that. <laughs> not that I'm not fine with a man-to-man hug from time to time, but I don't want our business interactions to be like that. You got to learn how they hear feedback best. You got to learn what level of kids' gloves versus some people just don't hear if it's casual. They need to be told, this is really serious. You're messing up really badly. And they need to be talked firmly to or else they just like, are like, ah, it's not important. Yeah. So I pick those vowels and I consider how they're going to hear the message. Yeah, and, and yeah, the timing of it, like you said, like, yeah, if, if you've already overloaded them, now's not the time to nitpick on something. You can save that for later. Your YouTube presence, you have a, a big presence there. Yeah. You also do a lot of, um, you know, through your freelancing, you do a lot of consulting with people, yes. helping them get their podcasts up. You also are someone who, you know, basically is helping run a lot of the Daily Beast podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, especially around like the freelancing and just you as a YouTuber, how do you decide what advice to give for free and what advice to charge for? Because I feel like, especially someone like you, will probably get a lot of inquiries of like, hey, can you give me advice on this? Or do you have any connections for X, Y, and Z? Like, how do you not give away everything and also at the same time still try to help folks? Because I know you want to help people out there, but you've got to make money for your own you know, time and energy. So the interesting thing I learned, so um, almost 10 years ago, I put out a book on the music business. I was managing two bands who got very successful and I realized I hate managing bands. It's a terrible, well, you want to talk about a job with no boundaries, you know, uh, I've never experienced anything like how bad being a manager is because it's four in the morning, somebody's drunk quitting in the band. Uh, the story I tell a lot of times, I was on the way to a date one time and uh, a girl had leaked the record of the band. That was like the huge thing and I, used to have this tiny laptop that had a Verizon wireless stick on it. And I had to sit in Union Square and beg her to take it down and tell her how hard we worked on the record and all these things. And I missed that date. I ran into that girl. She Every time she was so rude to me because I missed that date in public. It's like, you know, but like, that's what you got to do. And all of that is to say, uh, you... I started giving away all that information for free because I didn't want to do the job anymore. And I'd be like, oh, you know, I gave it all away. I'm like, why would anybody hire me to consult? I've said everything I have to say, but what they want to do is they want to ask you very specific questions. So what I've actually learned, you know, I'm about 200 videos deep in two years and change on YouTube. I say everything I have to say. And every day I do consults where people basically just, they're like, okay, you said this, but how does it apply because I'm a little weird? And it never matters that I'm giving away every thought in my head because then they want it more customized to them. So what I'm really lucky about is I just think about what I'm interested in each week and I put it out there and I have more consulting work than I can ever do. And it's crazy because, uh, I think there's an interesting thing that everybody is unique, especially in podcasts, like everything, even though we could all talk about how there's, you know, a million uh, podcasts of certain types, they all have something that they want that's a little bit different in how they fit in a niche. That's where the value is, I think. How do you, you know, because you're very well accomplished on the music side, on obviously the podcasting side, you know, but at the same time, you're very... I guess humble is the uh, probably the best way to say it. like you, you know you're not going around boasting all your accolades you have tons of them but you also are very confident so like you exude confidence when you're in the room like how how do you portray confidence without being cocky? 
you know, somebody told me a really interesting thing that I was doing without it being an actual practice, but they told it to another friend who was doing bad behavior, which is take note of what people don't like in a room. So one of the things I used to do a lot of is I name drop when I was very young. And the fact is, if it comes up in casual conversation that I say worked with The Cure, one of the most esteemed bands, that's way more impressive than like, oh, the other day I was talking to Robert Smith of The Cure. Like he seemed bad. And the thing is, is like when you have stuff, you can basically let things casually come out. And the other thing is, is like when you do actually know what you're talking about, you eventually get a concept. I mean, I, I, you and I have talked about like dealing with imposter syndrome before. It's like, I think everyone who ever is in this building, everyone who ever comes in this building has some level of imposter syndrome, even though we're dealing with some of the most talented, smart people I've ever known. I mean, the nicest thing about coming here each day is like, I'm never around, like I'm surrounded by idiots. Like I was oftentimes in recording studios with musicians. Like we have geniuses in here every day. But they still have imposter syndrome and you lack of confidence. But I think the thing that I've learned over the years is that um, you have to go out into the arena and learn that like you are good at things and to take those things in and try to remember the wins and remind yourselves as self that like I did good work with this person. I did good things, but also Let's not showboat it too much. <laughs> but don't need to put up a banner about everything. Yeah, speaking of, like, yeah, that imposter syndrome, I think sometimes the, the team members as well can be that way. And so okay. part of the job a lot of times can be building up the people on your team. Like, how, how do you do that? Like, because at times, like, yes, you have to reprimand them, but you also need them to feel like they're, they're valued. So a really good thing if you're able to do it and not every situation allows it is if you actually hire people you believe in uh, it's very easy to build them up and I've been really lucky sometimes through circumstance sometimes you know it's like a, a funny thing I, I think about often is like there's two paths to the two employees uh, who we have here most often is one is uh, Nick Karp who I knew for years and always thought he was talented. And then it was funny. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to hire for here. I'm like, God, I don't know anybody. And then all of a sudden, it was like one of those days, I'm just like, well, what am I thinking? Nick would be great for this. And it pops in your mind. Whereas Rosier, our amazing office manager, was somebody I interviewed off Indeed. But when you, similar to like what I tell friends of that, like when they become single out in their 40s, I'm like, you should go on a lot of dates. Like, don't just <laughs> settle for the first thing. You got to learn what's out there again. When you do a lot of job interviews and you say no to people, you learn what's out there and then you can really believe in the person because when you find the right person, you're like, wow, this person really gets it. Um, I think a lot of it is that and then a lot of it is also guiding them to what is the right thing of their job. And if they're uh, good at their job and they're paying attention to that, you're going to be proud of them and naturally you can tell them they're doing great work because that is the thing is it has to be sincere for it to click with people because we all have authenticity uh, bullshit detectors as we would say. <laughs> and they know when you're just saying that to get to the next review and things like that. So 
Well, yeah, and you also have to be sincere that way you're not complimenting them on something that you actually need to be, you know, or you might have to eventually reprimand them yes, for. Yes, yes, that's Well, why did you compliment me then? Yeah, that, that, I've, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's been a problem in the past, yeah. And that's, but that's exactly the thing is that you have to, you have to take it really seriously when you hire somebody. We have to hire somebody now, now and like, the, one of the people they've already flaked on meeting me twice. I'm like, yeah, this isn't it. I got to do another route. Yeah, yeah, because we can't have them flake when it comes to a recording. Or yep. yeah, if you're showing these signs when you're trying to get the job, <laughs> God forbid what's going to happen when you're in the job. Yeah. So, which so you know, you were also mentioning, yeah, we're doing some hiring now, but at the same time, the, 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 because these people are freelancers or part time, it, it can be a revolving door at times of who is, is working in places, whether it be because the situation doesn't work out or they graduate to something bigger. Hey, maybe that side project they were working on became you know something huge. Now they yeah. got to put more focus into it. How do you prepare for that revolving door of, of team members? Uh, Rolodex and understand that you're probably gonna have to do some of it yourself. As you know, there's sometimes it's like uh, my other recording studio would be like we have a big session, but you know that day uh, this best friend of the person who runs that place is getting married. And he has to leave at five o'clock and I'm going to have to take over and I'm just going to have to cancel Saturday night plans. Every once in a while, like the business falls on the business owner and you got to do it. Like there's times that, uh, one of, I can think of one of our hosts thought we were starting at 12 and told the, cause they were texting with the client instead of doing it through talent that the, uh, podcast was going to start at noon when we ended at one. Well, I got to do the session now. And I had other things on the agenda that day, and I'm gonna have to work an hour later and come home from things and not watch TV that night. I, the thing is, it falls on you, but also have a Rolodex of people that you can text in an emergency. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I think you know you you don't want to have you know someone lined up for the job because essentially you should already hire that person. But at the same time, you have to have that Plan B or Plan C. Because, unfortunately, you know, recordings aren't going to stop if somebody leaves. And so you just have to be ready <laughs> to either work it yourself, like you said, and or, you know, have somebody in your Rolodex that you can hit up to say, hey, can you start working here? Or can you, you know, bridge that gap until I get somebody more permanent? Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the other thing that we have to remember as business owners is, like, you don't get good work unless you know 90% of what goes into every position in your place. And... Uh, you have to understand what they're doing. And like, it's a funny thing. It's like, I, cameras is not my first thing. And like, I've had to buy the camera we use so I can play with it at night so I can start to understand it in case I'm the only one here and it breaks down because that's an easy thing that can lose this client. So it's like, I've had to learn a Sony camera, which I had never touched before we had them here. Well, I think what you bring up is also a really excellent point for people in any, uh, you know, business, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, in the entertainment field or maybe you're working in finance, it's really important that if you have a team that you know how, how to do the things that they're doing and how much time it takes because there's nothing worse than having a boss who is giving you these deadlines that just aren't realistic. Yes. Or, or, or the opposite, which is like, you know, like I've edited two to 3,000 podcast episodes and uh, I got a bill about a half a year ago for 21 hours where work I would do in three, and you're like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, this is a level of confidence. Uh, like, I've overbilled and fluffed a bill before, but 7X, that's that's a bravo <laughs> for your confidence, sir. Um, and you know, I never hired that person again, but like, uh, you gotta understand like what it is, because yeah, I think that your situation is the most common. That, 
managers don't understand how much work gets done and how and they think that unrealistic deadlines that employees work extra hours they're not paid for and then they hate you and you gotta understand the balance you have to understand what each person and at scale that gets very hard but you know a smaller business like us it's very easy to see what the work is yeah you just put the effort in and that's why with here, like I lean on you to work with the team. Like I don't know half the things that are going on day to day. With DCP, I lean on Adele, Adele mm-hmm. Coleman, my chief content officer, because she knows more of the day to day. Like I know how to do all the things that our team does, but I also don't necessarily know how that is working into their day to day schedule. And so I know that I don't know that. So I defer to the people on my team that do know to then say, all right, I need you to work on this program or that program. I'm not going to yeah. just jump in and. You know, even sometimes I have to push back on our team here to ask me questions. I'm like, you have to go to Jesse on that. I don't have enough knowledge to give you the guidance on what to do. Or, or even if I, they ask me, like, hey, do you have something for me to work on? I say, I have this, but also what did Jesse give you? Because, yeah. you know, when you have multiple bosses, you also have to be careful, too, of giving mixed messages. And it doesn't say we're you know, not perfect in that way either. But, you know, to say I think we set things up pretty decently here. But I think a lot of that is through your leadership of making sure that people know to come to you on certain items. Well, I would pay you the couple that you do enough to set this all up. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's more than most people, so uh, <laughs> you're being humble. Yeah. Um, well, as we're kind of wrapping up here, um, again, I know you do so many different things, but are there any particular wins that, that you know, you've had recently that you know, we can celebrate? You know, obviously, passion being a nice win yes. for us, but like, is there any other things that you really want to kind of you know, celebrate, talk about? Uh, one of the podcasts that I uh, produce is called New Abnormal for the Daily Beast. We just got moved up to three episodes per week, which, uh, you know, in podcasts, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, in podcasting, you know, there, there's good and bad with that. It's more work, which uh, sometimes, but, uh, you know, not a lot of podcast. you know, there, I think I, I've read it's 1,300,000 active podcasts right now. And to have a podcast that's doing well amongst all that noise is a huge, huge win. Uh, my YouTube channel, uh, I just started selling a lot of sponsored content, which is usually like when we start to say that the channel's being very successful when you're uh, selling. I, I mean, I've sold like nine spots uh, of sponsorships recently, which, uh, you know, a year ago, the count, I mean, actually six months ago, the count was at zero. So that feels like a huge, huge win. Uh, and it's been something interesting. Uh, I've been building on TikTok. If you want to follow me, it's at Jesse Cannon. Uh, but that's been growing really fast. And honestly, I'm a 44 year old growing fast on TikTok. It was like the biggest win I could even ask for. <laughs> I know, I gotta take notes from you. I just yeah, started doing my stuff on there too. And also YouTube, I gotta, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm taking notes from what you're doing. And yeah, let people know where can they find you on YouTube as well. Uh, so it's under my name as well, or uh, youtube.com dash you muse formation, which is uh, kind of my music company, is that. Uh, but yeah, I talk about the music business and how to build a fan base on YouTube every single week. And you can go to podstreamstudios.com uh, uh, to be able to check out this facility. Um, also, uh, what's the brooklyn yeah, nice and easy. I should remember. That. Um, well, any other things that you want to be able to let people know about, how to follow you, and/or where to check out anything you're working on? Yeah, I'm uh, at Jesse Cannon on all the socials and jessecannon.com has a bunch about me if you want to get to know more. And yeah, I'm always, uh, I say every week I try to get through the emails of giving uh, any advice to people. So. 
you think I'm the particular person for a question you have, uh, and you want to write something, I try to answer as many emails as I can each week. Thank you to Jesse Cannon, and thank you for listening to Entrepreneur Struggle. If you'd like to learn more about Jesse, his work, and his businesses, please visit our show notes. Also, we'll be back having these conversations live on Fireside, so please also check our show notes for ways to participate. Special thank you to my producer, Heather Johnson, and until next week, stay safe and stay healthy, because the struggle is real.